Uh, thanks, Kevin. Um, your words and encouragement really do mean a lot, not just to me, but to our entire church family. Uh, Cedar Mill, it is really, really good to be with you. I love you. I've missed you. And it is wonderful to be together here again on a Sunday morning. So many of you have prayed during this season. Kevin mentioned it. Prayed not just for me and my family, but for our church. And those prayers have meant the world. I have to be honest to say there have been seasons in my life where I have overlooked the power of prayer and the need for prayer. But in this last season, it has become so crystal clear to me how desperately I need prayer and you need prayer and we need prayer as a church so that we can follow Jesus faithfully together in this world. Because uh, this is a hard world. It's a difficult world place to follow Christ. The enemy is very, very good at what he does. And in this last season, there have been a number of challenges in our church. And so before I go any further, I do want to say one more time to all of you, but especially to those of you who have suffered the horrible reality of abuse in your life, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the role that I played in all of this mess. I'm sorry for any hurt or pain that any of this may have caused you. And I want you to know that I, along with the leadership of this church, like Kevin mentioned, we are committed to making sure that Cedar Mill becomes an even more safe place for vulnerable people as we walk forward. In fact, there are some very specific things I want to let you know that we're doing. All of our staff and leaders and volunteers are now getting increased training and vetting through the ministry safe process that our children's ministry has used for years. We're also implementing some new protocols on how to report potential incidents of abuse to make sure that things do not get missed or slip through the cracks. Three, our sub-team is working hard to nail down the third-party investigation, and we will have an update for you on that process coming real soon. And finally, I'm excited to say that we're in the process of forming a new abuse prevention and response team. This team will be made up of trauma-informed men and women that will lead and guide our response to any possible allegations of abuse going forward. So, so there are good things happening in this area. And I believe that God is helping us to become a safer and better church that reflects who he is and the justice he longs for all of us to experience. So thank you again for your prayers. Thank you for your commitment to this church family through thick and through thin. We are united in Christ and you have shown that. And thank you for your desire to take this journey with me as we move together towards becoming like Jesus. Because at least for me, I know that I have a long way to go. But God promises this. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will not give up on us. So with that, I'm going to pray and then we'll dive into our message this morning. Father, this morning, we're just thankful for you. We're thankful for your grace, for your mercy, for your kindness, for your justice. We're thankful for the fact that you are always at work in times that seem good to us, in times that seem difficult and hard. You're at work. You promise to use all things for your glory and to accomplish your purposes, your good purposes in us, God. And so we're thankful. We ask today, God, that you would help us as a church family, become more like your son. I ask God that you would use this message 
that you would use it to shape our minds and our hearts and our attitudes and our postures as we seek to live as your representatives in this world. We need you, Lord, for that. We cannot do it on our own. So come, Holy Spirit, empower these words, meet us where we are, and help us to look more like Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Today we are diving into a new series, and we're calling it Unlikely, Learning to Follow God from Implausible People. It's going to be a fun series. It's going to be a crazy series. And today, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to grab it and turn to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges is kind of near the beginning of the Bible. It's right after Joshua. It's right before Ruth. And as you turn to Judges 6, let me tell you this. The book of Judges takes place during a very turbulent and difficult and confusing time for God's people. Things are not going well in the nation. In fact, as our story starts today, God's people are being completely overrun by a a number of pagan nomadic people groups from the east, but primarily a tribe of people called the Midianites. The Midianites are oppressing them. The scriptures tell us that there are so many of these Midianites that when they invade, that when they descend on Israel, all of the nation's resources, their crops, their lands, their cattle are just being completely and utterly consumed. This is Judges 6, starting in verse 3. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites... Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Friends, this is a desperate time for God's people because the problem, the the struggle, the obstacle that they are facing feels too big for them to handle. But as the story continues, suddenly a call goes out from the people, a call to the one who's actually bigger and stronger and more powerful than even the swarms of Midianites who have invaded the land. This is verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. This is a big moment. This is a a shift because God's people have not been walking with him. I skipped over the first verse of this chapter, but it tells us that for years now, God's people have been doing evil. They have become complacent in their faith and they have been led away from a close connection with their Lord. Friends, none of us like to face big problems, but they do have an advantage. They do often shift our focus from self-reliance to God-reliance. I love that word impoverished. It says Midian so impoverished the Israelites. It's saying the Israelites are now out of resources, but not just out of resources. They're out of solutions. They are out of the ability to solve this issue on their own. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that place where life's problems are suddenly so big that you can no longer navigate them by yourself? I'll tell you this. I've been in that place this last season. 
It's not a fun place. It's a hard place. It's a scary place. But it is a place where the Lord can do some work. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. You see, now they are turned in the right direction. Now they are looking to the one who can truly help. And this is how the Lord responds, verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. And I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Quick pause here. When the Israelites cry out to the Lord and they say, we need your help, this is not the response they were looking for. See, they've got this massive problem. The Midianites are coming in like locusts all over their land, ravaging their crops and animals, destroying completely their entire lives. And so they reach out and they say, God, can you help us? Can you solve this problem? And God says, maybe. But before we talk about what's happening to you, let's discuss what's happening with you. One pastor I read this week said, this would be like totaling your car and then from the side of the road calling AAA and instead of a tow truck, AAA sends a pamphlet on how to practice safe driving. You're thinking, this is not what I need. This is not what I want right now. But friends, hear this. In the face of big problems, we must always pause to ask, does God need to do something for us? Or instead, does he long to do something in us? I have to be honest with you this morning. I don't like this truth. This, this point, I, I tried to take it out because I do not like it. The fact that God often prioritizes his work in me over his work for me, it's really fun to preach. But it's not that fun to live. Because when I'm staring down the barrel of trouble and I want God to act and I want him to do something and I want him to fix my circumstances and he says, hold up Dave, first we need to talk about what's happening in your mind or your heart or your soul. It's not always the most pleasant experience. But this is the Israelites. They were convinced that their main problem was that their enemy was too big. But actually, their biggest problem was that their God was too small. And so God says, let's talk about what's happening in you before we work on what's happening to you. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. All right, finally, finally we're moving towards action. Finally, here we go. God's going to get busy. Verse 11, and now we meet our main character, our hero, the, God, the one that God will certainly use to deliver his people. And the first picture we get of him is this. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, we don't do a lot of wheat threshing in our world, so maybe that doesn't mean a lot to you, but let me tell you what this is saying. 
You didn't generally thresh wheat in a wine press. You would thresh wheat on a threshing floor. And a threshing floor was always a large, hard-packed surface, either dirt, hard-packed, or stone. It was out in the open, often up on a hill where the wind would blow because what you would do is you would use a large stone, sometimes like a rolling stone with cattle, and you would crack the wheat. You would break the outer shell of the wheat, and then you would use a pitchfork to toss it in the air, and the wind would blow the broken shells, the chaffs away, and the now remaining wheat would fall to the ground. This was a common practice in the ancient world, and it happened all over the place. It was a big production, and it was very, very visible. But Gideon, he is not threshing his wheat on a threshing floor. He's in a wine press. Why? Well, a wine press was a tiny, teeny little pit carved down into the ground. It was a horrible place to thresh wheat. But Gideon is there for one reason and one reason only. He's afraid. He's scared. He's there because he's hiding. And the author is telling us right from the very beginning of this story, this is not Jack Bauer. This is not William Wallace or Katniss Eberdeen. Our hero today is actually no hero at all. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And you can just sort of picture Gideon hearing these words and looking around like, are you talking to me? Do you, do you see where I am? Do you know who I am? And so he responds in verse 15, pardon me, Lord. That's Hebrew for say what? Or if you're under 30, cap. He says, Cap, no, that's not true. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Friends, Gideon is not varsity-level talent. He's not the best of the best. In fact, he's the least of the least. And that's exactly why God picks him. You see, the point of this story is not if you're really gifted and talented and smart and strong and confident and brave, God can use you in this world. The point of this story is that God can do amazing things in and through your life if you deeply believe and walk in this one very simple truth. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. The answer comes again in verse 16. I will be with you, Gideon. You see, what makes the meek, weak, cowardly Gideon a mighty warrior is that the mightiest warrior in all the universe has promised to walk by his side. Friends, I have needed that truth in this last season, and maybe you have too. Maybe you, like me, have, have looked at the challenges or struggles or obstacles in your life and thought, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I have the strength. I don't know if I have the character. I don't know if I have the perseverance. I don't know if I have the courage. And God is saying, you don't, but I do. And I will be with you. Do you know that today? 
Do you believe that today? Do you need to hear that truth again today that the God of the universe wants to walk with you into whatever struggle you are facing and make you a mighty warrior, not in your own strength, but in his? You see, God has chosen Gideon in this story to do remarkable things because it's not Gideon's strength that's on display. It's God's strength. It's God's strength that will be shown in this story, not his. But Gideon, even after all this, is still not sure. And so he says, okay, if you really want me to do this, you're going to have to give me a sign. And so what Gideon does is he, he goes and prepares a meal and he gets some meat and he gets some bread and, and he puts it on a rock. And then in verse 21, we're told, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. See, God has now sent a message to Gideon loud and clear. I am big, I am bad, and I am with you. So let's go, Gideon. Let's do this thing. And friends, I don't know about you, But I have always thought to myself, if God sent me an angel, I'd do anything. I mean, I read all these these Bible stories and so many of these dudes in the Bible, they get an angel, like an angel shows up and says like, I got a message for you straight from God. And they're looking at the majesty and the power of a heavenly being. And they're being told the like absolute assurance and confidence of God. And I think to myself, man, if I got an angel, I don't care how scary, I don't care how challenging, I don't care how difficult the task at hand would be, I would do it, I would go for it if I had an angel. But here's the truth, and I read it all throughout the scriptures, and I see it again here, and so I know it must be true. God giving you signs can never replace you giving God trust. You see, signs can't replace trust. Miracles are no substitute for faith. You see, sometimes we are fooled into thinking that, that we would trust God if he showed up more, if he revealed more, if he showed more to us. But the reality is this. Trust only grows when we trust. Faith only gets strong when we exercise it, when we use it. It's like our muscles. Some of you have some New Year's resolutions. I would love to think that I could really get bigger, nicer biceps just by watching workout videos on television. It will never happen. Show me as many techniques, lifts, exercises as you possibly can, but nothing will happen to my arm unless I use my arm. And so now God will say, you want to grow and trust Gideon. I'm going to give you a trust-building faith enhancing warm-up opportunity right here, right now. Let's get you ready. Here's what he does. God instructs Gideon to do one very simple thing, to tear down an altar to the god Baal and replace it with an altar to the Lord. Now, Baal was the god of the Midianites, these people that have been invading. And over time... 
The worship of Baal had infected the nation of Israel. And it wasn't as if they'd stopped worshiping the one true God. No, they were still worshiping the one true God a little, but now they were also, and in addition to worshiping him, worshiping other gods, including this God, Baal. You see, as God got smaller in their lives, other gods had the opportunity to creep on in. Friends, let me ask you this. Do you have any idols in your life that need to be identified? Because here's the truth. If God is not a huge force in your life, something else will be. If God, if God gets smaller, if your trust and faith in him begins to shrink, then something else will move in to take his place because we're all trusting in, leaning on, relying on something. And when problems get big and when struggles get huge and when obstacles get overwhelming in our lives, there's actually an opportunity for us to identify the idols that have crept into our lives. Because when things get hard, you turn to something. You lean on something. You rely on something to give you safety and security and peace and joy and hope. That is what we do. That's what it means to be human. And so let me ask you this question. What are you leaning on these days? What are you turning to these days if it's not the Lord? Materialism? Are you looking to stuff to bring joy and satisfaction and significance to your life? Are you looking to pleasure? Are you looking to that, that pint of ice cream or that Netflix account? What if your Netflix account was suddenly canceled? How much panic would that cause you? Maybe it's an idol. Are you looking to success? or career advancement to give you significance, a sense of self-worth and identity in this world? What about status or image or reputation? What if that got threatened? What about wealth? See, money is one of the sneakiest idols out there, and here's how it works. You think you feel safe and secure and solid because you love God and you trust Jesus. But the reality is this. There's a lot of security and all those zeros before the decimal point in your bank account. And if that were gone, there might be a lot of insecurity. Maybe there's a low-key addiction happening in your life. You wouldn't call it an addiction. But the truth is, you're turning to a substance far too often for comfort. Or maybe it's another relationship. You see, these idols, they just creep in and set up altars in my life and in your life. And challenging times become an opportunity to see those idols more clearly and tear those altars down. But here's the catch. Idols, if they're really idols, are never that easy to remove because they attach themselves to our hearts. It actually takes a lot of faith to remove an idol, to tear down an altar. And in our story today, let me just ask you this. Gideon's asked to tear down this altar to Baal. Who do you think that altar belonged to? Some of you know the answer to the story. 
to this question in the story. Gideon's own father. The altar, God says, Gideon, tear that down, belongs to Gideon's dad. And right away, God is saying to Gideon, if you're going to learn to trust me, if I am going to be big in your life, then these other gods must come down and it must start at home. This is not just some religious exercise. God says, if you want me in your life, it's going to get real personal, real fast. But Gideon's in, right? I mean, he's going to do this. He's had the angel visit. That whole meal got burned up. I mean, he's certainly all in with God. Well, kind of. Gideon actually does what I think a lot of us do. He decides to trust the Lord mostly, partially, kind of. Listen to what it says, verse 27. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. Yes. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. You see, Gideon is taking just a little baby step of faith here. His God is getting bigger. He is trusting him more. His faith is getting stronger, but he still does not trust God as much as he should. But this is how gracious our God is. This is how kind and patient he is with Gideon and with you and me. Listen to how he affirms Gideon's small step of faith. In the morning, the townspeople wake up they discover that this altar to Baal has been demolished. They, and they do some investigating and they discover that it was Gideon who tore down the altar. And so they go to Gideon's dad and they say, bring, this is right in scripture, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar. But friends, guess who is inspired by Gideon's faith? Guess who's motivated by Gideon's growing confidence in the Lord? That's right. Gideon's dad. Listen to verse 31. This is Papa Gideon. Are you going to plead Baal's case? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by the morning. If Baal really is God, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Do you see what just happened? As, Gideon, as Gideon's faith grows, his dad's faith grows. Because trusting God is contagious. It's great for you, but it's not just for you. When my God gets bigger, or your God gets a little bigger, or their trust gets a little stronger, it rubs off on her and on him and on that group and on that family. And then suddenly we are all moving towards a stronger relationship with God. And what started as a small step for some individuals becomes an explosion for the kingdom of God in this world. It only takes a little faith. And God can do something great. And that's exactly what will happen in this story. What starts as a timid act of faith in the middle of the night will turn into one of the most amazing and world-changing stories of this generation. But that's next week. This week, 
Before we go, let me ask you this. What small step of faith does God want you to take? Because this story is not really about Gideon. It's about you and me and if we'll walk with God. And here's the thing. It does not have to be huge. Too often, we think faith and God stuff has to be enormous. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says this, truly I tell you, that means listen up because this is really true. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. If you just start with one small act of faith, trusting God just a little bit, there's no telling what God might do in your life. You see, sometimes we think that if we're going to trust God, it has to be on this giant, grand, walk on water, part the Red Sea, city walls come crashing down, scale. But maybe this week, friends, maybe this week God is saying, let's just start with something small. Let's just start with a little idol in your life. Let's just take down one altar. Let's just have one hard, honest conversation. Let's just do one small, scary thing with the knowledge that he, the Lord of all creation, will take that little step with you. Because he will. And so the challenge this week is to pray. Pray about that. Ask God, ask your heavenly Father, God, what would trusting you look like in my life this week? Would you pray about that? And when he answers, would you commit to taking that small step of faith just as Gideon did? We'll pick his story up again next week, so don't miss that. Let's conclude with the word of prayer. Father, thank you for for using weak, small, scared, broken, cowardly people like Gideon. Thank you for your faithfulness to walk with us when we move out to trust you. Thank you for being patient with us, Lord, as we, as we falter and as we doubt and as we shrink back and as, as our fears begin to hold us back from trusting you and living the life that you long for us to live. God, you're so merciful and patient. But I do pray this week, Lord, that you would give each of us one small step of faith, one place where we might trust you to do that hard thing, that little thing that would say, I don't know if I've got this in me, but my God walks with me. God, give us that faith. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. God bless you, friends. We'll see you next week.